Our text on this third Sunday before Lent, mysteriously called Septuagesima, on the front of your bulletin. Not to be explained right now. As we hear from the living God in his word is Luke, the third chapter, verses 23 to 38. Which means we come now to what is perhaps the least favorite passage in the Gospel of Luke, genealogy of Jesus. 76 names, at least 38 of them you cannot find anywhere else in the Bible. So, let me start with some questions. Because there are lots of questions that come up when you look into this passage. But I'm interested in three for this morning. Three questions of our text. Number one, why is this here? I mean, why is this here at this point in Luke's Gospel? Last week, if you were here, we considered the dramatic scene of the baptism of Jesus recorded in just those two short verses at the beginning of the reading this morning, with the heavens opening and the Spirit descending and the voice speaking, and then this. Why? What's Luke up to? Because in Matthew and in Mark, if you know it, the account of Jesus' temptation comes immediately after the baptism. But Luke puts the genealogy here. Why? Why is this here? Question two. Why does Luke's genealogy go all the way back to Adam? Now, that question might not have occurred to you right away, but it would have if you took a look at the other gospel genealogy we have in Matthew, because Matthew's genealogy only goes back to Abraham. So why does Luke go back to Adam? And third question. Why are the genealogies of Matthew and Luke so different? And I don't mean just the difference about Matthew ending in Abraham and Luke ending with Adam. I mean the names that are between Jesus and Abraham. They're very different lists. Why? I think that should be more than enough for this morning. So three questions. Three questions. Why is this here in Luke's gospel? Why does Luke's genealogy go back to Adam? And why are the genealogies of Matthew and Luke so different? And of those three questions, dear friends, the one I'm most interested in and eager to get to is the first one. Why is this here? But I think we have to deal with the other two questions first. So I'm going to do it in reverse order. So I'm going to begin now with the third question that I posed and work backwards. Why are the genealogies of Matthew and Luke so different? And again, this may not be a question that you were asking when this was read. But I think eventually you might have. Because having looked at this text today, if you went home and read Matthew this week, you'd have to at least wonder why his genealogy is so unlike the one you just heard on Sunday. So if you would, turn in your Bibles over to Matthew chapter 1, if you have them there. 
to do that. To the left of Luke, go through Mark. To Matthew, I want you to at least see this briefly. Go right to the start of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, because that's where he puts the genealogy. It's the way he starts his Gospel. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Then verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and off you go. So Matthew sets out very clearly what his genealogy is meant to show, that Jesus' lineage through Joseph shows he is the son of David and the son of Abraham. And then Matthew starts with Abraham and works his way forward to Jesus in time. But Abraham is Matthew's end point historically. Why? Because in Matthew's mind, the big deal is that Jesus comes in fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham, right? He's writing largely to Jewish audience. He starts with the father of Israel. Matthew's point is, Jesus is a Jew, and specifically a descendant of David via Joseph, so that not only does Jesus link in with the Abrahamic promises, but the Davidic promises as well. David, the great king of Israel, Abraham, the first patriarch of Israel. So I've already noted that Luke's genealogy doesn't stop with Abraham, which is what we'll consider next. But what about the names that show up in Matthew versus the names that show up in Luke between Jesus and Abraham. Because they are different. But then they're not all different. Don't miss the significance of the fact that Luke has David and Abraham in there as well. Those are still the names that stand out. Luke cares about Jesus being in the line of David and descending from Abraham too. But the names between Jesus and David, and David and Abraham, they're not all the same. Actually, between David and Abraham, they're mostly the same. It's a bit hard to compare them because you have to compare them in reverse. Because Luke starts with Jesus and goes back in time, whereas Matthew starts with Abraham and moves forward in time. So it's a little tricky to do that looking at from the two ends at once. So just trust me, there's a couple of differences in the section between David and Abraham, but by and large, the names match between David and Abraham. But between Jesus and David, all the names but two are different. And there's not even the same number of them. Luke has more names than Matthew does. And whereas Matthew traces Jesus' line through the kings from Solomon onward, following David, according to Luke, the ancestors of Jesus after David weren't kings. You can see that if you look here at Matthew chapter 1, verse 6. We'll just look at this point, not every point of difference in the genealogies, but look at this one point. Matthew 1, verse 6, Matthew has... And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Whereas Luke, in chapter 3, verse 31, going the other direction, temporally, says, 
Mattatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David. So Matthew has David followed by Solomon. Luke has David followed by Nathan. We know Solomon. Who's Nathan? Well, the Bible does mention Nathan. Nathan is mentioned in 2 Samuel 5, verse 14, as is listed as David's third son born to him in Jerusalem. 2 Samuel 5, 14 says. But the lines are different here. We have both the names of Solomon and Nathan. Both are in the Bible, which is nice, because beyond this point, for for the majority of the names in Luke, between Jesus and David, we just know nothing about them. They're never mentioned. We don't know who they are. So, what gives? Well, I, I spent not a little time on this this week for you. I read commentaries and journal articles. I even dug up a thesis or two written on this question so that I could stand here and be able to gladly say to you this morning that I don't know. (laughs) Lots of people have asked this question. Various theories are proposed. Some of them are more probable than others, probably, but we don't know. And the honest commentators, like I. Howard Marshall, say in their commentaries, quote, this is quoting I. Howard Marshall, it is only right, therefore, to admit that the problem caused by the existence of the two genealogies is insoluble with the evidence presently at our disposal. Which is not, hear me say this, it is not to say that Matthew and Luke are in unresolvable conflict with one another. It is to say that of the various proposed solutions, I don't think anyone knows which is the right answer. So I just want to give you a sense, though you could go to the literature and read about it in your spare time if you're interested, to give you a sense of some of the more common theories that are there to account for these seemingly different genealogies. So one older theory is that Matthew is tracing Joseph's ancestry while Luke, in fact, is following Mary's lineage Now, I find that one a little hard to swallow because Luke doesn't mention Mary here, whereas he does mention Joseph, and it's explicitly Joseph in Luke 1 who's said to be of the house of David when the angel comes to visit Mary. So even in Luke 1, the emphasis is on Joseph being in the house of David. But this all has to do with how you understand that parenthesis, that parenthetical phrase at the beginning of the genealogy here where Luke says, Jesus, the son, as was supposed of Joseph. And where you end that parenthesis and how you interpret this, and you can try to interpret it to more or less take Joseph out and then say that Luke really then starts talking about Mary's lineage from that point on, though I don't personally find that to be the most likely solution. However, there's a variation on that theory. See, I spent so much of my week on this, I have to tell you about it. There's a variation on that theory that says that 
maybe Heli, the name that follows Joseph, was really Mary's father, but because there were no male heirs in the family, which we don't know for sure, but maybe there weren't, so Heli could have adopted Joseph as his son when Mary and Joseph were married. That's not unheard of. There's precedent in extra-biblical literature, and even some argue within biblical literature for this kind of thing, which then is another way to come back to this idea that maybe this is Mary's genealogy. And this is a way that actually is a, seems a little more possible to me, it seems. Totally different theory is that Matthew is tracing the line of the royal succession. So he has Solomon follow David, while Luke follows Joseph's actual physical descent. So he has Nathan after David, and that at some point both of those lines converge, or that both of those lines converge at Joseph. <laughs> but then the challenge comes in figuring out why there are two different people named as Joseph's father. So Matthew has Jacob, and Luke has Heli. And then there's various theories for that. Maybe there was a second marriage, and Joseph was the legal son of one, but the physical son of the other. That is possible, and we find that genealogies can start in either place in different accounts in extra-biblical literature. Maybe that accounts for the two lines of ancestry being different. There's other theories. <laughs> the bottom line is, we don't know. What is clear is that both Matthew and Luke are evidently depending on detailed historical records. I believe they can be trusted. But we're missing some data points that we'd have to have to know exactly how to solve the puzzle. And that's the best I can do on that question for you this morning. So I did want to address it. However, we'll leave that question to move to my second initial question because this is where things start to get interesting, I think, in terms of Luke's intention here. So my assumption, my assumption at this point moving forward is that Luke is entirely accurate, as is Matthew. Joan Weston, who's who's a student of history in the first service, came up to me and said, you know, I'm a historian. I know two things can be accurate and look like they're not the same, but they are both true accounts. That's my assumption at this point. We just don't know enough to know how it all works. My second question was, why does Luke's genealogy go all the way back to Adam? And he doesn't explicitly say, right? But here's my suggestion. Matthew works from Abraham because his main point is that Jesus is the Jewish descendant of Abraham through David, and thus the Messiah who comes will fulfill all the promises given Israel. And Luke's on board with that. The baptism we looked at last week, if you were here, the significance of those events that followed the baptism, you remember, all of them tie in with the Jewish scriptures. They point to Jesus as the king and the suffering servant of Isaiah and the anointed Messiah. So Luke's not bypassing any of that. And David and Abraham are here in Luke's genealogy. But 
even as Jesus stands in that line and fulfills those promises and those scriptures related to the messianic, suffering, servant, kingly figure of Israel, for Luke, all of that leads us to a further point. That Jesus isn't just a son of Abraham. He's a son of Adam. His ethnicity as a Jew matters greatly, for all the connections that we just mentioned. But in the end, it's his humanity that is the crucial thing. Jesus is a man. Or you might say, Jesus is the man. The man to whom all human history had been moving from the beginning the man who would, in God's plan, be the one to set things to rights again, and not just for Israel, but for the world. Do you remember earlier in Luke chapter 3, from maybe three weeks ago, or four weeks ago, before we hear the voice of John the Baptist in Luke, Luke quotes from Isaiah to explain John the Baptist, beginning in verse 4 of chapter 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, remember? And you remember how that quote from Isaiah that Luke chooses, how that ends? Isaiah says, And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. All flesh. Not just Jews. Gentiles also. Which then would take us further back in Luke to Luke chapter 2 to Simeon in the temple with the baby Jesus, right? Luke chapter 2, verse 29, Simeon standing in the temple with Jesus as a baby Lord. He says, Now you are letting your servant depart in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Same language as the Isaiah quote, right? Isaiah says, All eyes shall see the salvation of God. Simeon says, My eyes have seen your salvation. That you have prepared in the presence, Simeon says, of all peoples. And again, same idea as the all flesh of Isaiah. And then watch what Simeon says. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. And just think about the end of that. I don't remember what David Weston exactly said about this when he preached on this text a few weeks ago. I wasn't here that Sunday. But do you see that the glory of Israel, according to Simeon, is to be seen in the salvation of the Gentiles? The glory of Israel meaning this reveals what Israel was all about. This is what the formation of Israel and the history of Israel, that long, sometimes wonderful, often sad history, God's plan for Israel, this is what it was for. It was to save the world, brothers and sisters. Abraham, the father of Israel, shows up in Genesis 12 because Abraham's the beginning of the solution to the problem that we have in Genesis 1 to 11. And the problem we have after Genesis 1 to 11 is sin. It's the fall. 
It's the fall of humanity into sin and thus the whole creation's enslavement to it. So that right from the start, what is the promise given to Abraham in Genesis 12 verse 3, repeated several times in the Genesis narrative. We looked at this recently when we covered it in Galatians. The Lord says in Genesis 12 verse 3, In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And do you remember what Paul says about that promise in Galatians 3? Remember what that means? Galatians 3 verse 8, Paul writes, And the scripture foreseeing, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. Or in other words, brothers and sisters, it would be through Abraham and through David, we find out later, that God would somehow deal with sin. That God would somehow reverse the fall. That God would somehow make a way to forgive sin and establish righteousness in his people, all to make it possible once again to know him. To live with him. To be his people. Even as he will be our God. And we now know what Abraham and David didn't. That ultimately the answer is the cross. And that it's the Messiah who dies on the cross. And because of who that Messiah is. That cross makes possible the forgiveness of our sins. And thus, the presence of God's Spirit, it's the cross plus the Spirit, that would be the deliverance brought about by the Messiah of Israel, the suffering servant who would die in our place to heal us. And having done so, to anticipate the restoration of all creation in a new heavens and a new earth. So do you see then that for Luke it mattered very much that Jesus descended from Abraham and David, but that ultimately the fulfillment of all that was spoken to Abraham and David was to be for the blessing of all people. Luke needed to connect the story of Jesus not just with the history of Israel, but with all of human history. And that meant taking his genealogy all the way back to Adam, which brings us finally to the first question I posed about this text. Why is this genealogy here? I mean, why is it here in Luke's gospel, going all the way back to Adam? And by now, you can see it coming. If John the Baptist is preparing the way of the Lord... And if Jesus, the Messiah of Israel, will one day be the king of the nation such that he will execute the final judgment, and if we're called to live lives of repentant faith for the forgiveness of sins so that at that judgment day we're gathered into the barn, and if that life of faith is made possible because this Messiah will be the one who can change our hearts, baptizing us with the Holy Spirit, as we looked at three weeks ago. 
And this is the Messiah who, according to the voice after his baptism, in order to do that, will not, will not only be the ultimate king, but the suffering servant who dies for our sins to make all that possible. Then what has to be true of Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the son of Adam? He has to succeed where Adam failed. He can't just be related to Adam. He needs to live the life of faith that Adam failed to live. He needs to trust his father to the bitter end of the cross. He needs to be the son of God. Because you saw how at the very end of that genealogy, Luke's gone back to the very beginning with Adam. He adds this final touch. It's unexpected. Adam, the son of God. The son of God. What did the voice from heaven say after Jesus had been baptized? You are my beloved son. We explained that last week primarily as meaning Jesus was the king, the king of Psalm 2. Listen, Adam was the first son of God, made in the image and likeness of God. And image and likeness biblically are very connected with sonship. I can't prove that to you in this sermon at this time. But being made in God's image as his son means what? Means Adam was to exercise dominion. Right? Dominion. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them, the sons and daughters of God. Brothers and sisters, do you realize that is always what we were meant to be? To do to lovingly exercise dominion over a creation that was to bring glory to the Creator, all the while dwelling in the very presence of God, walking in righteousness, eating of the tree of life. Luke now presupposes you know what happened. You know Genesis 3. <laughs> that this Son of God failed. That this Son of God lost the honor of that designation through disobedience and was therefore not able to pass it on to his descendants. You and I are not children of God by birth, right? According to Paul in Galatians again, what is it that makes us sons and daughters of God? faith. Galatians 3 verse 26, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God. You hear that language? 
in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith, not meaning to exclude women in any way there, but to link it explicitly into the terminology that's at use here in the biblical context. You see, what point is Luke making? I think this, that Jesus is the Son of God, the one whose relationship with the Lord of creation is of perfect intimacy, who walks in utter righteousness, who is the very image and likeness of God and hence whose dominion will be eternal. Jesus Christ is the Son of God who will succeed where Adam failed, brothers and sisters. And there's the point. And I say there's the point because of what follows the genealogy in Luke 4. Who shows up to tempt this Son of God. Luke 4, verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. It's a serpent. And what does he say? Verse 3, Luke 4, verse 3. If you are the Son of God, did God really say? Prove it. And he did. You see, Jesus did prove it. but not, thanks be to God, not by falling to the temptations of the servant, the serpent, to not trust his father, to exercise this authority when it wasn't the right time. He proved it by walking faithfully with his father and not just in those 40 days, but in all the days given him. Jesus knew no sin. That's what the Bible says. And thus could Paul make his central plea sounding a little like John the Baptist. We implore you on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Look at There's 76 names in Luke 3. At least 38 of them you can't find anywhere else in the Bible. What ultimately is the point of it? The point is, the gospel didn't start in the days of Herod, the king of Judea. The gospel started in the garden after a first son of God, having sinned, set in motion a history that would lead to the son of God coming to be with us the Son of God, 
who wouldn't sin, who would die on a cross, be raised again, and reign as Almighty King and send His Spirit to make us sons and daughters of God, like Adam was. Make sense? God keeps His promises. I mean, don't you think that's it? I mean, God's providence across the ages directing the traffic of history to the climactic birth and life and death and resurrection of Jesus, his beloved son, sometimes through names we know, Noah, Abraham, David, Zerubbabel, other times through names we don't know because nobody knows anything about them. Esli, Nagai, Seru, Er. Do you think they knew what they were a part of? They all played a part in God's plan to bless the nations, to show his salvation, to save his people from their sins, to reverse the fall, you see? And thus, death itself. And so, the final words here go to Paul, with whom Luke traveled very much. Paul, who writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 45. Just listen as we close with this. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45. The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Listen to this language. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers and sisters, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, Death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit,